on the flight deck. Crews are now manning for the next launch. It's time to clear the flight deck and catwalks. Stand well clear of all jet blasts, prop arcs, and exhausts. Time to start up the GO aircraft. Let's start them up. Hi, I'm Dave Baronic, call sign bio. I was an F-14 Rio and a Top Gun instructor, and I'm one of your hosts for the F-14 Tomcast. Today, we're talking Operation Desert Storm, which started in January 1991. It was a landmark in modern warfare, and the Tomcat played an important role. Our guests are F-14A air crews who flew in Desert Storm, and we'll get their insights and opinions on taking the big fighter into combat. Thanks, Bio. And I'm Craig Snyder, call sign Crunch. I was an F-14 pilot, Top Gun instructor, and I'm your co-host here on the F-14 Tomcast. Today, our guests are a pilot and a Rio who are both in VF-84, the Jolly Rogers, while deployed aboard the USS Theodore Roosevelt, who flew Desert Storm missions from the Persian Gulf. Our pilot is Jim Matheson, call sign Fuzzy. Now Rio, Brian Wood, call sign Woody. So let's hear their story. Fuzzy, Woody, welcome, and thanks for being on the F-14 TomCast. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Good to see you again, Woody. Yep. Nice seeing you, Fuzzy. Nice seeing you guys, too. Thank you. Hey, for each one of you, uh, we want to hear where you're from, how you got commissioned, and how you got into naval aviation, and then into F-14s. So, Fuzzy, let's start with you. Sure. Uh, as the youngin', I was going to defer to... Uh, to age, but I'll dive in here. Uh, oh, so I, I get, man, it's already starting. This is going to be good. <laughs> Fight's on. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you said Fort Green, so we're go. Um, so I went to the Naval Academy class of 87. Uh, I went to the Academy from uh, just south of Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, and then I went right on down to Pensacola. And uh, between Pensacola and Kingsville, Texas, it took me about two years to get my wings. And then I was fortunate enough to then go up to the VF-101 Grim Reapers, uh, went through the RAG, and then I joined VF-84 in uh, in probably May, June of 1990. So when we get to the, you know, the desert storm time, I was, a, I was a brand new nugget. I was one of the newest pilots in the squadron, and actually Woody and I flew together quite a bit, um, if we can get to that. Um, so I was really fortunate, I think, relative to some of my Naval Academy classmates. I had folks that were going to West Coast F-14 community who... Um, who weren't even through the RAG yet. Some of them, my classmates from the Naval Academy didn't even have their wings by the time I'd come back from my first deployment. So I was super lucky to get down to Pensacola, up to Oceana, uh, you know, into a great, great squadron and out uh, into a combat operating environment in my first two, three years out of the Academy. So it was fantastic. Woody. Yeah. Got- so I, uh, my, my father was a Naval Academy grad. He was a fighter pilot, flew in, uh, uh, Flew in, in uh, Korean War. In fact, we were both in the same squadron, VF-24. So that was kind of kind of neat. I carried on the family tradition, uh, went to the Naval Academy, went down to uh, Pensacola, uh, wanted to fly because the vision had to be a Rio, but that was fine. Uh, and uh, was assigned to VF-124 on the West Coast, the West Coast rag out of uh, VT-86. And then joined uh, VF-24, in fact, Bio, you and I were were shipmates for cruise, and then uh, after that, uh, after VF twenty four, I went to the East Coast, was an instructor at VF one hundred and one, the East Coast RAG, and then had my department head tour in VF eighty four, uh, where I 
I met Fuzzy. So, and the rest is history, I guess. Is that's that right? I, I think <laughs> so, that's so, so in 1991, then Fuzzy, you were a department head, and uh, I'm sorry, uh, Woody, Woody, you were a department head. Fuzzy, you were a JO on your first Nugget tour. Is that right? Well, I thought I was a department head, but it turns out I was just a branch officer. Yeah, that's right. I, I'm I'm familiar with the feeling. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, was, is that right? Woody, you were a department head? Yeah, I was the operations officer up until uh, just as we headed over to uh, Desert Storm, I turned over ops. Oh, wow. Okay. So you, okay. So I'm just to set the stage for all of our listeners and watchers as the operations officer, you're deeply involved in basically setting the stage and making sure that the squadron is prepared and ready to go into battle, ready to go to war. You probably were incredibly involved in making sure that everybody had had the training they need. You had the ordinance or whatever you needed between you and the maintenance and the admin to make sure everybody's ready to go. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yep. Hang on one second. And he'll cut this all out. No, he'll leave it in. Definitely leave this in. <laughs> it's exactly. It's good. Right, the- we had a few of those. <laughs> good for the real. Uh, yeah. So, question again was uh, about ops and, and maintenance. So, uh, yeah, ops and maintenance work hand in hand, getting the the squadron ready. Uh, your the operations department, obviously, working the uh, the air crew, getting them ready to uh, go out and uh, do the fight maintenance is getting the aircraft ready. So the crew air crew has them uh, available. And uh, that was a, uh, a big item in August of 1990, when Iraq invaded Kuwait, uh, we had been getting ready to go on a Northern Atlantic short, Northern Atlantic cruise up to Norway uh, for about a month and a half and then come back. That was canceled. And Everything, all of our training, everything turned uh, into overland and desert type environments uh, that we thought we might see in Iraq. And so between August and December, when we deployed, that was our, our main focus. Okay, so so one little detail, Woody, I think you said that you left ops as you were going over. So what did you rotate to? Yeah, so I I became the air wing uh TARPS officer or recon officer. Oh, that's good. Uh, basically, I was uh, kept on there and uh, kept kept in the squadron. So kind of a collateral duty was to be the air wing TARPS officer. Okay, cool. So so once, I mean, we're going to figure, we're going to figure that the audience is uh, basically familiar with the, the background of uh, Iraq invading Kuwait, as you said, and then Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So we're not get you know we don't want you guys to go over a lot of that stuff as we talk. We are going to want you to focus on the Tomcat. But you started to uh, to hint at it once the invasion happened, and your so your North Atlantic deployment was canceled. Did you just say, okay, we are definitely going to war? Let's get all the training we can. Was that the attitude uh, in the air wing? Yes. Yeah. It was. Uh, we were we were scheduled for our regular deployment in the end of December anyway. So we, we kept continuing on towards that. We just took that uh, Northern Atlantic part out. And, uh, but, you know, the focus wasn't nearly as much as uh, uh, of a uh, Fifth Fleet Persian Gulf type uh, event. It was uh, the previous cruise had been a uh, Mediterranean love boat cruise. And so that was kind of in our minds uh, what it was going to be again. 
And we did a uh, hard shift to, uh, hey, we need some overland training. We need to uh, figure out what it is we might be doing in Iraq when we go over there. And we knew pretty much immediately that, uh, yes, we were we would be heading over there. So did you guys go to Fallon? Uh, did you get a, get sneak out a, a trip to Fallon or just do all kinds of El Centro? What other places did you go to? Yeah, not El Centro. Since we were on the East Coast, uh, it was harder to get overland training. I think we did uh, send some planes out to Fallon. Uh, you know, we had already had our airwing Fallon trip. Uh, we had already passed that. In fact, I think that might have even been before Fuzzy joined the school. It was, yeah. At the time. And, uh, but we were able to get uh, find some overland training sites so that we were able to do some uh, radar work and, and overland uh, air combat maneuvering training, things of that, that nature. So, Fuzzy, what about you? You're a JO in your first Tomcat squadron, and two months after you joined, there's there's a war on the horizon. Yeah, it was exciting. I mean, so you know, joining the squadron, um, I was going to be one of the last JOs, you know, the crews to join, a couple of other folks from my time frame from the training command and uh, VF-101 all joined. And I would say that you know, we had Streak Chanik uh, as our skipper and Woody coming out of the rag. I mean, the group of folks that they had assembled at VF-84 was just an awesome group of people. Um, it fully, I think, appreciated in retrospect. I know we all have our great squadrons we've been involved with but that i think that group of folks and that talent that was assembled was awesome so showing up there was you know like any jo was all about what's going on what i got to do to add value to the squadron so there's sort of the operational bit and then just the flying we started doing some workups and they said early on i got i got crewed with woody and some of the other more senior rios and i was really fortunate i got to go through tarps training as a relatively young uh young pilot so i went through tarps training pretty soon after joining the squadron and that turned out to be a great mission set we should come back to for desert storm and then our 93 crews to bosnia as well so um that was cool so i spent a lot of time for me focused as we were getting ready for the workups is getting up on the step on on the recon work uh cameras a lot of low-level flying and woody and i were, were talking last week and remembering I mean, eventually as crunch knows well the tomcat became a great air-to-ground platform you've talked about that in a some of your previous sessions. And we did a little bit of that bomb catting, uh, never did get sort of fully qualled prior to the 91 cruise, but we did spend some time thinking about that uh, environment. And then, yeah, we pushed out right after Christmas in 1990. Uh, and I think everybody, you know, we, we've been following current events and there was a lot of, a lot of movement, a lot of aircraft carriers that were already forward deployed, a lot of moving out uh, from both coasts into the region. So I think we were, I think we were fired up and I think we felt like we were ready and then we'll get to the transplant, but we went basically from you know heavy, heavy training to we're getting on the ship day or two after Christmas, 1990, and we had to be you know in the Persian Gulf. We ended up getting there less than three weeks later, so we did very little, very little flying, you know, between the time we left and the time we actually got to the Persian Gulf, which is pretty interesting. So we can talk about you know when we arrived on station and such, but um, it definitely took us a little bit of time, at least for me, as a nugget. I felt like I was pretty on the step in, in December and then a few weeks of not flying. Uh, it took a little bit of time um, to, to get accustomed to the environment and being back around the ship. After a few well, yeah, that, I think all we were pretty skill, They perished. That, that's very perishing. Yeah, yeah. Stuff. So, yeah especially as a, young, as a young J.O. where you're, it's all about reps around yeah. the boat, tactically working with your crew. But it was pretty cool. 
You don't have a lot of muscle memory to fall back on. Go ahead, Crunch. Sorry. I was going to ask, so um, what is what was the air wing composition like on that deployment? Yeah. What, what were the different squadrons? We had two two uh, F-14 squadrons, uh, Jolly Rogers and uh, VF-41 Black Aces. We had two Hornet squadrons, uh, uh, VFA-15, VFA-87. We had a couple couple A-6 squadrons. Uh, and then we had an EA-6 squadron, E-2 squadron, S-3 squadron, and then uh, Helos as well. So it was interesting because we had a lot of firepower. So we had two Tomcat, two Hornet, two A-6 squadron. So, uh, I mean, th- those guys, especially the Hornets and the A-6s delivered a lot of, a lot of ordnance on target. Wow. Now that, just, just for listeners, that, that second A-6 squadron is unusual in my experience. To have a six strike, you know, six fighter and attack squadron. Uh, I'm used to five or even four in some air wings. So that's cool. They loaded you guys up. Yeah. So what was the attitude on the ship as you're sailing over? Is everybody just gung ho excited and, and all that? (laughs) Yeah, we, uh, yeah, I would say a definite yes. I think the, the feeling was as, as the, uh, start of desert storm was approaching, we knew the, the date that everything was approaching. I think there is worry that we were going to be left out, yeah. that we weren't going to get there in time. And and we we kind of didn't. We made it through, as, as Fuzzy said, uh, said, we left the rest of our battle group in our in our wake and got over there quickly, went through the uh, Suez Canal, raced around the, uh, the edge. And the war actually started when we were off the coast of Oman, uh, getting ready to get in the Persian Gulf. And we got in, uh, I think, that night, next morning. Yep. Uh, but you know the you know we wanted to participate. We we wanted to do be able to put forth what we had trained to do, and uh, you know we were hoping that. I think a lot of people are thinking that this thing was going to be over in a couple of days. Uh, obviously not, but uh, I think that was the initial thought by people as we're headed over. And and once you did that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You were not the only carrier on the scene. Correct. We were, uh, I think we were either the last or second, I think we might have been second last carrier to, to, to get over there. Uh, we were the third carrier to be in the Gulf. And then I think America came yep. after us and, and was in the Red Sea for a while before they came over and joined us in the Gulf where we had four carriers for most yeah. of Desert Storm. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, and it's not, yeah, the uh, Persian Gulf is not a huge body of water. Uh, so there was a lot of activity. I mean, obviously, a lot of activity around the whole of the uh, of the operational airspace, even Red Sea aircraft coming all the way over to Kuwait and what have you. So it was a busy it was a busy uh, operating environment, and the Persian Gulf in particular, with three and then four carriers. There was a lot a lot happening there. So I think it took probably I just remember a few days to kind of get again situated. But you know, once I think the the air wing and then the other air wings and all the Red Crown, you know, where's the controllers and folks on the ships figured things out you know by the end of the the first week was a bit chaotic as i remember it was like i think everybody's trying to situate what was going on uh we, we flew those initial strikes but after about a week or so i think the air wing myself felt like the whole of the persian gulf started to settle into i wouldn't say a routine but i think we started to figure things out pretty quickly Okay, so we'll come back to those first strikes, but real quick, you use the term red crown. So tell just for people who uh, who don't have the historical background, tell everybody what that is. Yeah, so if you're you know you're operating off the off the carrier, and um, essentially it's a mobile air traffic control. So red crown 
you know, often is based on one of the Aegis ships that has really, really high performance radars and they're tracking all the aircraft coming and going and they're yeah. coordinating with the airborne assets. So we had our own E2C Hawkeyes, basically uh, carrier based airborne air traffic control. And we had the E3s, the big, you know, the really the big Air Force assets that really had, you know, high altitude, big radar. So all those pieces and parts of the air traffic control picture were all integrated you know, from data link and different sectors that they were tracking, different frequencies that we talked to one another on. So, and, uh, you know, our job, and depending on the mission, was to check in and navigate through that air traffic control system. So we could tell, you know, who's friendly, who's foe, who's supposed to be going to, who's supposed to be coming fro, all that kind of stuff. I can only imagine how uh, uh, chaotic, is that the right word? How, how, uh... yeah. I don't know. It, it'd just be like there's random. It might be a good word as well. This people are different altitudes, different directions. I know that there's deconfliction, but all it takes is one person off an altitude. Next thing you know, you're going left to left with somebody who you aren't yep. supposed to be. We weren't using night vision goggles yet at this point, right. so nobody had that. Well, nobody, none of the fighter guys did. I don't know. Not, uh, not the F-14s, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But most. People weren't using that. And, you know, you're trying to work through all those frequencies and the, the ships are each given one little box, one little carrier yep. operating area. You had CVOA one through four, if I remember correctly, in the Gulf. You got a couple of carriers in the Red Sea. Everybody's moving across. You got the Saudis doing their thing. Yep. And there's just pure chaos. And, and you got to find your tanker, right? And you're like, there's the tanker. No, wrong tanker. It's that yeah, one. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and don't forget about all of our Air Force friends who, you know, were, uh, flying around as well. And we can come to that later of how we actually figured out what we were supposed to do the next 24 hours. But it, chaos, certainly, I think, but again, I think, Woody, maybe you probably had the big picture sooner than I did for sure, but it, it, it took me about a week, it felt like, to kind of stabilize and figure out how things, the rhythm of the operating environment. Yeah, the, f the first couple of flights definitely were chaotic. You, you know, you, you may do and you figured out how to get through it, but there was a lot of chaos because everybody was trying to figure it out, not just uh, our air wing or our squadron. I mean, the Air Force and everybody's trying to, this was something new for everybody. Right. Absolutely. Holy cow. So the, the war started early in the morning of the 17th. When did, uh, when did TR fly your first combat missions and when did you guys fly your first combat missions? So uh, that night, the TR... Uh, we ended up being uh, uh, one of the night carriers. And uh, as I said, there are four carriers in the Gulf. Two flew uh, mainly during the day, uh, had some crossover at night. We took off the last couple hours of daylight and mainly flew at night. So a lot of our missions were, were night-related uh, missions. Uh, our our first mission, uh, uh, I was crewed up with uh, Marty Chanik Streak, who was on your earlier episode uh, talking about VF1 days. And uh, uh, he and I were walking down the passageway, and the CAG jumped out in the hall and said, Hey, Streak, you're going out tonight. And uh, that was it. We had about two hours to prepare for the mission. You know, so everything, everything that you learn in Top Gun, everything you learn in training, that, okay, you got to go through and plan everything out and everything be nice and for, you'll be very perfect. You know, we're sitting there jumping through uh, our hats trying to get all, all the information we could because we knew that we were going to be launching in two hours and we hadn't, you know, we didn't even know what the mission was yet. So we uh, <laughs> found out what our mission was going to be. It was, we were going to escort an Air Force EF-111 who was taken up out of uh, Saudi Arabia. We're uh, take a section of F-14s, 
uh, Marty Chanick and myself, and then we had uh, Kurt Krautdale and uh, Tom Smutheim were our wingmen. And uh, also an EA-6B was going to launch. So we were the first three aircraft from the uh, Theodore Roosevelt to launch in the Desert Storm. Uh, if you want, would you like me to continue on with the mission? Okay. So the uh, uh, we launched. First thing we had to do was uh, get airborne and, and get some gas. The KC-135s were right uh, where they said they were going to be. The... Uh, the mission itself uh, was to take some gas. However, the uh, the 135s were in the goo, so we had to do a little radar approach onto the uh, uh, onto the 135s. We found them just as we're getting ready to tank with the 135s. We hear on uh, I don't know if it was on guard or on uh, quad three. We heard a friendly voice of someone we knew from VF2 uh, who was on the Ranger said. Woody Streak, welcome to welcome to Desert Storm. And it was uh, anyway. It, it was a guy. Uh, you can uh, use his call sign. Okay. Well, it it was a a guy. It was a guy from VF two. Let's say that. But it, it was nice to hear a friendly voice, and uh, it was Dave Possum Cully. And uh, but here we are trying. We're fighting the tanker and the the goo, and we get someone uh, chatting with us on there. But that that was of interest. Headed out, uh, uh, headed out west to uh, Saudi Arabia, south of uh, Kuwait, as our kind of entry point, and we uh, uh, make it to our our area where we're going to meet the EF one eleven. We never actually see them, but we are in the uh, same approximate vicinity. This is all in support of a strike, and the strike goes at designated time. This uh, by by this time everything's. Uh, uh, dark. As we're flying to our uh, waypoint to start, all of a sudden our wingman gets lit up on his raw gear. And uh, first thing Streak and I know about it, uh, we hear him call breaking right. We hear uh, see flares flashing off in the uh, in the darkness. And we're going, what the hell is going on? And then he comes back and, and it, uh, we didn't receive anything on our raw gear. And it looks like it was just a bad indication, but that was a nice way to get started. Okay, so so are you guys still in the weather, or do you have a horizon? Or no, we we have a horizon at this. Okay, point. good. In fact, in fact, we uh, we're at forty thousand feet, so we're above everything. And then it, once you get o- got over land, everything uh, kind of cleared up. Forty thousand feet in an F fourteen A. That's yeah. right. Yeah, prime <laughs> operating environment. Right? Not afraid. At night. At night. That's right. That's right. He put his 1.5 G uh, uh, right break in. Uh, so as we uh, we got to our start point, headed north, and we were uh, full burners. Lights were off, so we had no uh, no lights. Just had our form lights on, and so you could see your uh, wingman based on the afterburner or on his uh, his form lights. And starting so for for the audience, those are the little green strip lights that are on. Certain right. parts of the airplane. Okay. And, and oh, you can, you can tell from his afterburner. That's a good way. To, that, that's that, right. That was that was a better way to, to tell where he was. Yeah. As we're headed north, just in my mind, you know how your mind works. Uh, I saw everything going off, and it just reminded me of like a Fourth of July because all of the 
Iraqi AAA was just coming up into the air at various altitudes. And some of it was coming up to our altitude. And uh, so you just saw it going off everywhere. And it was uh, it was quite impressive. And it was also going, OK, this is we don't want to be heading that direction. We don't want to go that direction. But as we're going north, we're jinking back and forth, he heading uh, uh, left and right, just making uh, uh, flying our good defensive flight. Uh, Streak obviously did a great job. Went up there. We got to our end point, did a 180 and started heading back south. And uh, same thing, jinking back and forth, not uh, no level flight, just up and down, left and right. And we finally get back to our end point. Uh, at this point, we were, uh, we're headed east to go to uh, to rejoin the aircraft carrier. Uh, as we uh, head out to the uh, the Gulf, we get some sort of warnings uh, and you know check your uh, check your IFF. We did everything was on and good. Uh, we made it uh, to the tanker, came back and landed. So it was at, it was about a four and a half hour uh, mission or so, and uh, came back and landed. By this time, the whole carrier is pretty much asleep, and uh, you know. You know, I was looking for the band to uh, to welcome us back, but they weren't there. Uh, we went into the ready room, did our debrief. And uh, at that point, we got uh, called saying, hey, uh, you know, they're getting ready to shoot you guys down. And, you know, we found out that uh, some of the folks on the surface ships were a little tr trigger happy. They wanted to shoot us down because they weren't convinced that we weren't uh, bad guys exiting the area. I, so that was nice to find out after the fact. Well, and there were some blue on blues during Desert Storm. So, yeah, oh, yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, you know, so we we made it back safely. That was uh, the first mission. Uh, probably lost about five pounds in sweat, and uh, but it was uh, you know worked out well, and everything started to improve from there. The missions got uh, were a little bit more organized, had more time to brief them, and uh, and you know things went well. Oh, that's good. That is good. What a what a great opening night story. That's good. Okay, so so fuzzy. Let's talk to about. Let's talk about your first one. Yeah, and I um a little hazy, but the first two missions I remember were quite different. The first one was both were daylight, um, and I think I think the first one I was involved with was I think we had a extra. Strike lead from VFA 15, and we were supposed to go up and hit the some targets in Basra, and so we were we were operating Persian Gulf. So it was mostly like our footprint over that whole time frame was mostly kind of Kuwait City, you know, east southeast Iraq, Basra, and such. So we you know they dropped a lot of ordnance, especially in in around the Bosnia Basra area. Republican Guard was entrenched. A whole bunch of stuff was happening there. So we were kind of a big strike package, and, I, and the image I remember was. I mean, we had at that point um, trying to figure out, you know, the, the sort of integrated air defense picture, which is both the AAA and SAMs, the uh, surface air missiles that Woody was talking about. But also, I mean, Iraqis had a lot of aircraft. And so that was something we were trying to figure out over that first week. And, you know, fast forward, eventually most everything that they flew either got shot down or got, you know, absconded by uh, the Iranians across the border over time. Uh, but that first week or so, there was still a lot of sorting out to do whether or not there was going to be an air to air threat. So the F-14 had its classic mission set was making sure that the, 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 the skies were a-okay for 
the uh, the strike guys to come in and drop ordinance. So I just remember going up through the Basra Valley, and we were same kind of idea, probably mid 30, 35,000 feet, just kind of cruising along, working the radar. There's not much happening on the radar, but I remember this the idea of like we're you know we're moving just to make sure that we were dynamic in the air and that we weren't an easy target. We're also kind of looking down and going, this was the, I mean this is the beginning of civilization. Mesopotamian River Valley. It was nothing there, right? Well, you could see some water, but no signs that that was once the, you know, the beginnings and cradle of human civilization. So I, I remember that sort of dichotomy in my mind. Okay, I'm, we're jigging and jiving here, trying to you know do our thing. We're going to go drop some ordnance or support our shipmates. are going to do that, and then thinking about the history of the place. So I remember that image clearly, and I think the next day or two we started doing some tarps missions where you talk so strategically the role of the F-14 and carrying the the reconnaissance pod, um, but there just wasn't a lot of good imaging assets. And and so the F-14 became a really important asset in theater and Woody was running that for the air wing and, and we liaisoned a lot with the other. There was a, one F-14 squadron in every air wing was TARPS enabled. So we had, you know, half a dozen or maybe eight aircraft in all of the Persian Gulf that could fly these TARPS pods because not every aircraft in every F-14 squadron was TARPS enabled. So the, the the first TARPS mission I remember was kind of flying along, kind of northbound along the coast of Kuwait. We were trying to get a little bit of a sight picture of what the Kuwait uh, coast looked like and things like that. And we, we did a lot more. We did dozens, probably even a couple hundred, I would think, Woody, over time frame, TARPS missions during the, the Desert Storm time frame. But I remember kind of flying up the coast and the, the, the TARPS camera had a camera you could look straight down. It also had an infrared camera we should come back and talk about that because that was actually a really interesting asset later on but it also had an oblique camera where you kind of stood off and you could you know, image a, somewhat at a distance and you had to get the altitude and the angles and all that kind of thing right so i remember flying up you know that the coast of kuwait and it was like kind of little like little flashes and stuff and we assumed it was triple a but we were uh, you know um we were far enough away and at high enough altitude and again one of those surreal experiences that we're kind of flying up the coast trying to make sure we're in the right situation the right position to get the imagery but also looking at you know probably folks down on the ground very interested in what we were doing and probably taking shots well outside of lethal range but that's when it kind of clued in okay we're in a situation here where uh, you know the folks on the ground uh, don't want us here so you, you kind of get into that mindset that you got to start being uh, thoughtful and careful and making sure you're doing the right kind of things and we'll talk over the conversation here about things at the air wing learned over time and we actually lost some aircraft based on some things we probably weren't paying close enough attention to early on in the in the whole environment. What and what what is that? Let's talk about that now. Are we talking triple A? Are we talking SAM threat? Um yeah I think all the above and also the fact that the threat didn't end, you know, at the coastline, right? Um we we lost an A six crew. I think best that I recall was, you know, you were thinking that one got feet wet once you're out in the Persian Gulf. Again, you're you know, away from the land environment that you're, quote unquote, safe. It turned out that the Iraqis had deployed folks with shoulder launch SAM, so smaller mobile surface air missiles on you know, all these oil derricks. There were just hundreds and hundreds of oil derricks out in the Persian Gulf. Because that's oh, the that's big, terrible. You know, they got shot down feet wet. Yeah, exactly. And that's what happened is you kind of pushed over and started getting into the low altitude environment out over the water where I think folks thought they were more safe. And it turned out. That wasn't the case. They, did you I think they think you just, lost the crew? We did. We lost an A6 crew, uh, lost the aircraft and both of the crew members. Oh, that's terrible. 
Yeah. Yeah. Just so anybody knows, like a, a shoulder launch missile, typically called a man pad, like in the US, we have stingers, th- those types of things. Um, you could be out on an oil rig or you could be on a small boat and that thing can shoot 10, 15, sometimes even 20,000 feet above yeah. the shooter's altitude. Um, so you talk about low altitude, it's actually low medium in some cases, if That's they right. can see you. And I've actually played around with them. It's incredibly easy to pull it up, sight through it, get the IR lock and and fire that thing off is it's not hard and it's a real easy way to get somebody if they're not paying it if they are unaware that you're down there because there's no indication it's completely right. passive you're not going to be able to see it coming and it's right. completely and not to mention I if I may I was the surf stair threat guy at Top Gun right and so we used to talk about this a lot that um, for the folks who are listening to audio only you will not get to appreciate what I'm about to do but you're about to get shot at by a big pen. So as the big pen is launched and it's coming directly at the camera, you can notice that you can't see this thing at all. It's so small. It doesn't look like that going through the air. It looks like that. And as it's coming straight at you, it's very small. You aren't going to see the, there's no smoke trail. It just pops off. It's a little dot and shoot. I can't see an airplane half the time. If I don't have my cheaters on, you know, you're not going to see that thing. It's going to bag you real quick. So. Well, it's funny. You're doing that. You're doing that crunch. I remember, I think it was Hog Sias, Lang Sias had the surface to air lecture back when I was on the staff and this whole idea like okay you got your pen coming at you and like well if it's if it's going out in front of you it's tracking you if it's going it's like I can't even see the thing there's no way I can tell whether it's <laughs> tracking me or I'm just if I any indication that this thing's coming at me I'm going to start doing something like smut you know and crowd move the aircraft deploy chaff <laughs> oh yeah absolutely so where were we? So yeah, threats. You were talking about threats being feet yeah. wet. You could get shot with man pads. Feet dry. You've got AAA. You've got SAMs. You guys are flying at night. You're not on goggles. You probably, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you were probably getting shot at and didn't even realize it because you don't even see it coming up, right? I mean, yeah, it's a lot of, lot of activity. You could, it was, I think, hard to tell as Woody said. It's hard to tell. Is it coming at you? Is it not? I mean, the F-14 has... The electronic warning systems they weren't the best in class but they were you know they, they were pretty tuned and i think you know to the to the maintainers um i think oh you know our maintenance crew did an amazing job getting our aircraft ready and for, for an aircraft that you guys have covered this in previous podcasts the f-14 is a wonderful aircraft but it has its you know share of maintenance challenges but i would say that overall the readiness of the aircraft the performance of the system especially the, the defensive systems was great so they worked pretty well but you're right you can't tell Um, uh, you know, and also the other thing in that first week, I mean, uh, Scott Spiker gets shot down a different, you know, different people. So we're, 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 we're definitely winning big time, but we're also across the whole theater, you know, we're losing some folks and we're trying to figure out exactly how capable are the Iraqi forces in this first handful of days. So I think people are really trying to calibrate at that point. I don't know what he, what, if you remember that, but yeah, we also lost the, uh, the only F-14 uh, from VF-103, they got shot down. Uh, pretty incredible story, uh, survival story by the pilot, right? Uh, Boots Jones. And uh, then Larry Slade, uh, uh, the Rio, was uh, captured and was POW for the rest of the war. But all of that, uh, you know, and then we also lost an F-18, one of our CAG LSOs. Uh, uh, they think something happened uh, where... The aircraft was shot, but he just disappeared from the screen, and uh, they they never found uh, never found where he went. So uh, I think that was uh, 
know, even though, uh, as Fuzzy says, we were, you know, things were going well, we were still having some negative things happen. And I think that started to get to people that, hey, we're doing everything we're supposed to be doing, but some bad stuff is still happening. And uh, uh, we ended up having a memorial service for the three uh, air wing mates who, uh, who, were, who died and uh, because it was within a day or two of each other. And Wait I think did, that you have that, of, did you have that during the campaign or did you have that? Like, yeah. During the yeah, campaign, yeah, yeah. We took an afternoon off. Uh, wow. Yeah. And uh, had this because I think they could see that uh, uh, it was starting to affect people. You know, it was, it was affecting the, the Roosevelt air wing, especially. So we took it off, you know, had our hour and a half. And then all of a sudden, I think that kind of turned things around for uh, uh, for the wing. Now, if I could throw in a, a counter story to that. Uh, so there was a, uh, of course, all the admirals, as soon as they, uh, from the, the four carriers, as soon as they got over there, they all got their uh, data rank out, wanted to see who was the, uh, the senior admiral. Turns out it was the uh, admiral from Midway. And so uh, I think he felt like uh, after we had lost these two aircraft, he needed to come out and, and give us a uh, attaboy, you know, pump us up. So he came over. Uh, around, I'd say about one o'clock in the afternoon or so, maybe noon, to and had all the air wing gather on the forecastle. Well, with us being the night carrier, 12, 12 p.m., 1 p.m., that's the middle of our uh, REM time. And so uh, it was not, it was not much appreciated. He was the, uh, uh, the butt of many jokes on, uh, <laughs> on scheduled cartoons, on airplanes, stuff like that. But it was, uh, you know, one of those things you just kind of shake your head and go, all right, what what were they thinking? But uh, Okay, I, I'm going to explain airplane cartoons and flight schedule cartoons. Oh, yeah. for, for, for the non-Navy guys, uh, the, the flight schedules and the airplanes were, you know, internal documents. And so they had irreverent, very pointed, and hilarious cartoons was a tradition. I mean, well, moving on. So, um, you know, we're getting through the first week, obviously the, the desert storm went, went for yeah. several weeks. Right. So talk six us weeks, through yeah, the, about probably six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk us through the, uh, you know, talk us through, you were doing tarps missions. You were doing, uh, uh, it, you know, some fighter escort missions. Talk Did you ever have any air to air encounters yourselves or anybody in the squadron or the air wing? So, yes, there were uh, two encounters. One was actually during Desert Storm. And uh, uh, a lot of our other missions that we haven't mentioned yet were some sort of cap. You were some sort of barrier cap off the coast or right. uh, after a while, after things uh, settled down over uh, land, we had some overland cap as well. And but, they were, uh, what were they trying to cap against? Iranian or Iraqi or what? No, the Iranians were never, they were always considered as a wild card, but I, I don't think they were ever really considered the main threat. It was just, just in case uh, the Iraqis tried to fly. I think the biggest threat became the Iraqis trying to fly their planes out of Iraq into Iran. And so yeah. we were kind of capping against them. Uh, against them. So uh, our sister squadron had a mission where uh, there was a, uh, an Iraqi aircraft that was flying and airborne and everybody was going, yep, there it is. There it is. Well, 
unfortunately, they didn't have their their radar was not working. And so uh, uh, basically, they could not do anything about it. They couldn't find the aircraft. They would have been given the clear to fire had they found it, but they didn't find it. And uh, how frustrating. Fairly, uh, fairly senior pilot and uh, and Rio. So, in fact, I think uh, anyway. So that was that was one that was disappointing for the the whole air wing. And then uh, this is a post uh, desert storm, but because we were the last carrier there, we were supposed to be on cruise. We just stayed in the area after all the air the carriers went home. We stayed in the area, so we continued to fly what became Southern Watch, and then uh, provide comfort. Uh, the missions up in the north, we supported that for another four months after Desert Storm was over. And, uh, Marty Chanick and I, Streak, were flying an overland cap by, uh, solo in the uh, uh, in Iraq and uh, we got a uh, helo on radar. And so went down, it was flying fast. At this point, the Iraqis are not supposed to be flying any aircraft, and pretty much if they were, uh, aircraft were getting the clearance to fire to, to shoot at them. So we went down and uh, uh, did a flyby. It was a either a hind or a hip, I can't remember, but it was uh, definitely an Iraq, Iraqi aircraft flying at a 100 feet or so. And uh, trying to get, you know, we're passing that on to our uh, the E3 that was controlling us and they would not give us the clearance to fire. So that we kind of uh, lost our opportunity there, but uh, you know, that's, that's what happened. So before we get too far away during a desert storm, what was your, uh, I mean, that that's heartbreaking right there to see an enemy airplane. And so, I, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to dwell on that before, before we, uh, what was there a typical loadout for you guys during desert storm? Yeah. So uh, initially, because we're all good Top Gun trained men, we loaded out with, uh, I think we start off with a, a Phoenix, had uh, uh, two sparrows and two winders, and perhaps. Maybe one, two, two, maybe, uh, or it, probably two, two, one, or two, 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 something right, like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, uh, in fact, we might have even, even had a couple missions where we had two uh, Phoenix on board. And then, after a few missions, we're going, well, this is this is not doing this any good. We're not going to be able to use this for anything. So we went to four and four after that, Sparrows and Sidewinders. And uh, uh, cool. pretty much that, I think, the rest of the time, perhaps even went to two and four, uh, depending on what what our mission was. But yeah. yeah. And the tarps, yeah, tarps would normally be kind of two and two, and then the tarps pod sat in the belly kind of a, one of the aft Phoenix stations. That was a good uh, mix. And we probably have like a four and four on the, you know, the wingman for the tarps. That was a pretty standard configuration. Um, go back to Woody's point. So, you know, if you just look, if you look at the map, we talked about this Mesopotamia River, River Valley, but there's a, you know, a shared, you know, and historically contested border between Iraq and Iran, right? Um, and, and the theory was that the Iraqis had made a deal. Hey, if we move our aircraft over to Iraq, Iran, we're going to, it'll be safe storage. And then when this thing's all over, we'll go back and get them and you give them back to us. I, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I'm not sure any of those aircraft ever made it back across the border after all this was said and done, but there was a, you know, a lane cap and it was essentially this barrier cap to try to keep those aircraft from, from going over. Cause the idea was we want them, you know, in our theater of op and we want to, we want to destroy them all. 
Um, so that was a pretty, that was a good mission, um, except that the Air Force, I think, controlled most of that, of the air tasking order. And so they they usually got the daylight Elaine cap stuff. So they those folks, um, that was a pretty target-rich environment for the F-15 drivers over on the side of, of Iraq. And Woody and I were remembering, you know, this the, the tasking would come down. We, we didn't have like this long strategic plan. You had like a 24-hour op order that came in over the telex and the fax you know, like two o'clock in the morning. So everybody would be hanging around and wait for the air tasking order to come through. And then it was the air tasking order for the whole theater. It wasn't like today's where you got a nice little email to the TR battle group. Hey, here's your tasking. This stuff was coming over. You had to sort through all your line items and figure out what missions you were going to fly uh, the next day. And we got pretty routine and whether they were the barrier cap or the some of the strikes that were going on. And then we had uh, several TARPS missions, you know, on a daily basis. As well, and those are always fun to do. Um, there was a couple I did have too to the the idea of the air to air stuff. I don't think I was unique in this, but um, to Woody's earlier comment, the A sixes were always trolling around, right? And the EA sixes with their jammers, and that was their job to try to create noise for the surface to air threats. Um, but that also created issues for us to be able to see their uh, their systems and their IFF the, uh, identification friend or foe. So it was a number of us that did intercepts on our own EA-6s. And I can remember one where we did sort of the classic F-14 visual identification where we ran the intercept and offset and used the you know, the big uh, television camera system in the front of the F-14 to figure out what the heck we were looking at. And so, but he, we, it was, you know, we were probably only two or three miles away after a 20, 30 mile intercept figuring out that it was, um, you know, a, a, a friendly aircraft. And so sorting out, we talked early between Red Crown um, and the e- E3s and E2s trying to make sense of all the aircraft coming and going, especially when the squawks, you know, IFFs weren't working. And there was also another case, and I remember this was later, still Desert Storm, but we were running around uh, doing a TARPS mission, like a two-ship in Kuwait, Kuwait City, and we had an unknown aircraft flying around. And so we ran an intercept and kind of ended up sort of coming in. They were low altitude headed kind of north, northeast through, you know, over Kuwait City. Um, and we ran a really nice intercept with the two ship got in a really nice position. I'm um, still couldn't tell what it was. We got close enough to see that it had only a single tail and that got us super excited because all the, I mean, most of the fast movers and stuff on the, on our side, other than the a sixes had two tails. Um, long story short, it ended up being an a seven from over one of the red sea air wings. And so we, we were like super excited. Maybe it was like an Exocet or a MIG or something like, Oh my God, this is going to be great. We're going to be heroic, um, you know, and, and to the earlier comment about blue on blue, I mean, that was like, you know, we got within about two miles or so, and certainly within um, a weapon engagement zone. Um, first, you had to figure out what it was. It was low altitude snow and you could tell what it was, but you had to go through all that process if the, uh, you know, if the, if the Red Crown folks couldn't um, positively identify it as a friend or a, a foe. So those were the uh, two closest air-to-air excitement points that I came to. And I think everybody had some of those as they went along, but most of the stuff that I spent time doing was in the TARP uh, regime, which was super fun and cool as well. And what altitude are you flying around when you're doing those TARPs missions? Do you remember? Yeah, I mean, normally normally being the ten to 15,000 foot range is pretty optimal for the camera. Yeah, you're kind of putting yourself where you got enough of a camera footprint um, and you're trying to put yourself above the, the threat. But um, some of them were low, much lower altitude. Um, we got in it, it, later in the Desert Storm timeframe um, as I think 
uh, Saddam Hussein was starting to kind of read the writing on the wall. They lit off all of the all the the oil wells. They lit all those off, and it created this you know massive mess, which is both trying to destroy the I think some of the economic assets of Kuwait, but also created a you know a really difficult operating environment because there was just smoke everywhere. And so we flew a bunch of missions uh, in through that environment, trying to use the infrared camera to figure out how many how many oil wells were on fire, what the heck was going on. I think the, the view was just a few, but I think when we brought all that imagery back, and this is probably, you know, week four, probably middle of February, something like that. There was lots of these things on fire. Uh, and, and they that was showed up, they showed up on the tarps IR really. I mean, yeah, the, on the IR stuff. Yeah. 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 The infrared stuff, you could actually go in and map them and, uh, and see what was happening. So most of the time we were 10 or 15,000, either oblique to the target or often before or after a strike, we were going kind of right over the target area. Cause again, we didn't have great imagery. Um, satellite tasking was what it was. The RF four, you know, the, the air force asset wasn't there. And so I think that the, the leadership was really relying a lot on this imagery um, to figure out what was going on, to think, figure out what they wanted to drop bombs on. And then actually to get the right commensurated coordinates, actually, make sure we're hitting the right kind of things and then to go in afterwards and, and do, um, you know, battle damage assessment to make sure that we had hit what we wanted to hit. And then later on, um, you know, when we actually get past the pure air war where the ground war was starting to happen, we can come back to that. But then all of a sudden that was happening so fast trying to use the, you know, the assets to figure out where the heck the forward line of the battle area was, where the good guys and the bad guys and, and it was moving pretty quick. So I think the tarp stuff, Across the whole F-14 community, both both um, Red Sea and Persian Gulf, I think was a, it was a great mission for the aircraft and for our squadron. Amazing, amazing. Hey, I want to jump in with some information that may be of interest to you if you're watching this podcast. The 2022 F-14 reunion is going to be held in Long Island, New York, April 28th to May 1st, 2022. There's going to be tours, panel discussions, a banquet, and other events. Information can be found on the F-14 Association website. That's f-14association.com. I hope you'll consider attending. Hope to see you there. So all in all, I mean, it was it went for several weeks, you know, Desert Storm. How many missions did you guys get, personally? What do you just looked at your logbook? Mine's back east in Boston, but I probably did 40 or 50 missions, I would guess, probably. And I was fortunate because I, I did more of the short tarp stuff um, and not, we had some like seven and 14 hour cat missions, which were painful. Great way yeah. to get hours, but it's a hard way to, to get hours. <laughs> we had a couple like double cycles. I think the standard cycle is like a seven hour, you know, uh, cat mission. Uh, we can, Woody and I can come back later and talk about our, 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 our night cat mission later. And everybody was so there's, tired. There's no um, time like the present. Was, well, I was, I, I we did a we did one of these barrier caps um, later, which was probably in the last week, and we were sort of positioned south of, of Baghdad. Probably the last week of the so. war, or the last week of the deployment. Yeah, yeah the last war. week of the war. Yeah, because this was just in in the Persian Gulf environment, is what he said. We chopped out of the Persian Gulf through the Red Sea, where we did some stuff, and then eventually ended up for the last four months of the cruise off the coast of. Uh, Syria uh, uh, and Turkey, Turkey. and we're, we're flying north into the northern part of Iraq, which is actually a really exciting and interesting part of the cruise as well. But at this point, this we're in the last week of Desert Storm, so probably late February 
and everybody's tired. I mean, we're doing night ops. So one thing I remember is just being tired all the time. Um, and, and Woody and I were out on, I think it was probably like a, supposed to be a five, six, seven hour mission. And we were toward the end of that. I was so tired. So we made the deal where, okay, listen, Woody, I'm going to, I'll be, a, uh, as we're heading north, I'm going to close my eyes. You work the radar. And then we're kind of, we were in two ships. We're off of our flight lead and, and, and just keep behind him. And then when we're ready to turn, just wake me up and we'll turn south and you get a nap and then I'll pay attention. And so this is working great. Right up until the point where both of us fell asleep as we were headed north and uh, <laughs> lost sight of the flight leads. Kind of on me. I'm supposed to be the one keeping track of this. But we both kind of microdosed there for a little bit. And then on the radar, you know, so we're now tracking north, you know, well past our cap position. We've lost sight of the flight lead. Our E3 is like going, what the hell are you guys doing? So Woody and I had a rude, rude awakening. We're like, afterburner, you know, what are you working the radar trying to find our flight lead? Oh, I yeah. think we uh, we woke up pretty quickly at that point, and that when it hit the tanker yet again. Um, is that how you remember it, Woody? Yeah, uh, <laughs> the part about it being your fault. Yes, I remember. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> exactly. But it was that that was uh, it was actually the night they shut down Desert Storm. It was the last flight oh, of the last flight. The, oh, yeah, of the uh, you know no more flights after that in Desert Storm, and and uh, we were just both so tired that we fell asleep and uh it was a very interesting way to end in the uh in yeah. storm yeah yeah Christ. i do remember that i remember coming back when he because i think the sun was just starting to come up as we uh as we recovered that was like i, I thank you for remembering that i remember that that mission and then yeah coming back and landing just as the sun was coming up it was pretty cool crunch have so, you ever fallen asleep in an f-14 while flying, if if I did, I don't remember. <laughs> I think Good people answer. find that hard to believe. I, I fell asleep in a jet one time, but it was on a cross country in the United States. But it it was I don't know as a pilot, you know, a lot of times the autopilot's not working. So yeah. oh well, yeah, 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 yeah. There, there's a little more. There's a little more involvement, but uh, it certainly could have happened. I I I remember a story when I was over in theater of a Hornet guy falling asleep one time, and uh, it. He woke up, but ooh, yeah, no, I yeah. remember when I was a nugget back in 24, a, a pilot in Rio fell asleep in, uh, in Marshall. <laughs> and they, oh were my headed, God. they were headed outbound <laughs> and they woke up. Oh, no. Ah, <laughs> where the hell are we? Yeah. We just so going to make your push time. Okay. So getting back to the war, uh, you know, as you guys are going over and at the start of the war, obviously there's, it's, there's a lot of just uh, learning curves and all that, but, but did, what were you expecting to do as, as Tomcat squadron? You know, did you think you were going to go in there guns blazing, aug nines and launch Phoenix and all that? Cause, or, or, or did you think not, it's not going to happen or, you know, what'd you think? Yeah, I, I don't think we thought we we're going to, you know, we were hoping that we would have the opportunity to go guns blazing, but I think we were just going over there and trying to execute what we had been taught, all the training we had gone through, which, you know, for, for my point, the training that uh, we had done during the turnaround cycle was, was spot on. And we were able to, uh, that helped us get through the whole, uh, the whole environment. And, you know, I think just being Navy guys, we were able to, uh, flexible and adjust to the environment. 
one of the things that you know we went over there talked about the loadout we adjusted that as we went along but we also adjusted how many aircraft went out uh, initially yeah. tarps missions would go out and you'd have a, a wingman for the tarps mission or you'd have a cap you'd have a section of f-14s on the tarp after a while you know we were running out of of air crew who could stay awake we were running out of uh, aircraft who could be maintained and so by the end we were flying single missions you, you, uh, overland cap by uh, with one aircraft or the tarps wow. mission just going cool. out alone and unafraid with nobody uh, nobody on his wing but still which, armed so yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely but but it goes against everything that you learn yes. uh, in the turnaround cycle. You know, it's it's always you're always there with, with two aircraft, and we just we learned well. This in, in this environment, it's okay not to, not to do it that way. So I think that was a big eye opening experience for a lot of people who were you know thinking that okay we need to do it by the book, and then uh, learn that hey we just need to be flexible yeah. and, and get the mission done. Yeah, it was interesting if you think, uh, you know, sort of foreshadow later, uh, you know, when when I went out to the Top Gun staff and we started thinking differently about how you employ an air wing, you went really to a strike fighter mindset. I think early on, you know, we were doing much longer strike packages, right? The classic fighter sweep and then the strike package comes in. I think once we figured out that there really wasn't much of an air to air threat, um, but, you know, reminder when you're going over, I mean, the, the Iraqi armed forces on paper look pretty formidable. They really sophisticated integrated air defense, lots of aircraft, um, you know, a, a lot of troops, all that stuff. And and so um, I think had we not gotten in with such overwhelming firepower and, and fought the, the war the way that we did, it certainly could have been different. So I think that was the right way to employ the U.S. armed forces from a, a historical perspective. But, you know, we're going over doing a lot of studying of the different systems and and so, so I think trying to really make sure we understood what was going on. But again, after that first week or two, when it became clear that we own at least own the airspace, then we started compressing the strike packages because you then you want to minimize your vulnerability uh, over the targets. So we really started thinking differently about strike fighter tactics. And I think that really informed how we thought uh, how the modern air wing, I think, does does deploy itself. Um, but, yeah, I think it was uh, dependent on the, the time frame and the mission set and kind of what we were tasked to do. Awesome. Well, you know, what's interesting, um, you know, you think back, uh, can, I, I just wanted if you guys could even imagine back 1991, you know, you're just wrapping up February, 1991, you've just been, you know, you've been going to war with Iraq, they're like ceasing hostilities. Could you imagine that a dozen years later, we would actually have bases on the ground and we'd have, you know, dudes going over, going overseas to do, you know, six months on the ground in Iraq in Al Assad. I mean, could could you even imagine such a thing back then? Well, it was uh, it it would have been hard to imagine. However, right about that time is when we started going back to Vietnam, and uh, you know the relations had were turning. You know, because I know when I was a young Jo, I could never imagine someone going to Vietnam that an American uh, that we'd ever be friendly with Vietnam and. So the same type thing, but so I could see, you know, there's always something out there. Things will always change, but uh, uh, yeah, when you're flying over on hostile flights, you uh, it's hard to imagine that someday you would actually be on the ground there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, 
I do have a, I do have an interesting question. So, you know, there are four, three, sometimes four carriers in the Gulf, right? Everything's a little confusing. You hear the stories. Did you ever almost land on the wrong boat? Uh, no, never me. I, <laughs> There's I, a pause. I never, there, was, there was a definite pause. He's like, well, I, I, I know, what's almost? I know a guy, I, I know a guy you know, who almost did. But I tell you what, you had to pay attention, right? Because you, you, maybe you're, maybe the ta- you know, the nav systems were on from the carrier. Maybe they weren't. Now, we had the benefit. TR was the big, you know, the big daddy. And it also didn't smoke. So I would always do like, okay, let's, is it the right? You know, is it in the right position? Is it, does it got smoke coming? Is it big? Oh, it's big. Good. That's probably a good sign as compared to, you know, some of the carriers were, you know, on a relative basis, much smaller. Yeah. And well, we when you say we smoke, you're talking about conventional versus nuke. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So yeah, that's yeah. right. The TR was a nuke ship. So it didn't, didn't have smoke coming out of the staff. Um, Woody and I were trying to remember when we talked last week is like, I swear that we had an aircraft from another air wing uh, trap aboard the TR. Uh, and I know it happened somewhere in the, in the Persian Gulf. It wasn't our uh, ship. It was another one. And that's like that. It was tough, right? Because all of a sudden you're there. And now that aircraft is captive to that air wing. And they're going to put stickers and zappers and paint and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I know um, as, a, as a Rio, that was my primary job when we would come into the break to circle the land the, the daytime. As soon as the pilot did his 90 degree to the left, I would look down and make sure I'd find the right uh, number. Exactly. Exactly. Make sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 71. Yeah. Looks good. Oh, crap. It says 67. We're out of here. Like, Get it. Yeah. Wait, boss. Exactly. Get Just kidding. See ya. They're going, hey, boss, can we take him? Can we take him? <laughs> <laughs> Make a ready deck. We got to get this guy. Exactly. Right. Oh, yeah. But it was, uh, but it was cool. And then, uh, as Woody said earlier, you know, at the end, the America came over. So we had four aircraft carriers. You know, and it's like having four aircraft air carriers in Lake Erie, right? Probably actually Lake Erie's bigger. Um, but we did this fantastic photo shoot, you know, after Desert Storm. We had all four carriers in this diamond formation kind of cruising, you know, and we got all sorts of great photos. But that was that was super uh, impressive. It was kind of cool, too. As Woody said earlier, you got a bunch of your friends that you uh, went through flight training with or knew and then are sharing stories in the years after, but there was a lot of, you know, folks that you knew operating in that same tight environment at the same time. It was really, really kind of challenging, but also pretty cool. That's awesome. That is cool. That sounds like fun. Hey, Fuzzy, yeah. you, uh, you said you were at the Top Gun in the, in the mid nineties. And it makes me think about, uh, Brad Elward's recent book about Top Gun, the, uh, the big, the legacy. Yeah. And he talked about, uh, desert storm influencing, uh, Top Gun and Navy Naval Aviation Training. Can you can you shed some light on that? SFT yeah, sure. and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. So we alluded to it earlier. So I Destrom it was my first cruise. I did the '93 cruise where we did most of our operations in in Bosnia. Another really t- we were in the Adriatic, so another super tight environment. Uh, and there was a, actually a bunch of us from CAG eight that had gone through Top Gun together as students in '92. Uh, between cruises and then went to the staff afterwards. So everybody that was on the staff, sort of, I was there from 93 to 97, which included shutting down Miramar and moving up to Fallon. But um, I think there were two big things that came together then. One was just rethinking, um, you know, the the battle space, the weapon systems. That was really, I mean, Top Gun's about training the the trainers. And you've talked about that in previous sessions, of making sure that we were sending the best air crews back to their units to train. But it's also about thinking into the future about 
you know, what's what's the battle space going to look like? How are we going to you know, employ our weapon systems, et cetera? So we spent a lot of time thinking about that and our back and forth to Fallon helped us do that. But we really rethought the idea that we were going to have these classic employment of the fighter sweep and then the strike package. A6s went away. The F-14 became a really good strike fighter asset itself. So we really rethought how we were going to employ uh, the air wing and it really became a strike fighter mindset. Uh, and that was a whole different set of tactics and thinking about what we what we did with the uh, with the aircraft and with the air wings. So that was sort of thing number one that shaped it. Thing number two was, and Slammer talked about this, was just thinking about you know when, especially when we went to Fallon and then Top Gun became part of the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center. Was how do we think differently about training and making sure that we're at an air wing and a squadron and a you know and a four ship two ship level? How are we making sure we're best trained? Uh, when I went through Top Gun, the, the course was, I think, five, maybe six weeks, right? It was really kind of the old Top Gun, which was a lot of air-to-air. Probably five. Um, fanta- fantastic, fantastic training. And that's where I started to really understand how to fly the F-14. It wasn't really until I joined the, the Top Gun staff that I figured out how to r- really get better at it. But we also thought about how do we best train folks. And folks like Crunch, who who came at the end of their, the end of the squadron tour, much more seasoned. And then we created not just a, a longer program, and it was at that point 12 weeks, much more in depth. It wasn't just fighter, it was strike fighter. So much longer syllabus um, covering uh, all these different ways that we were going to employ the aircraft. But it was also making sure that the crunches of the world were ready to go to their now new roles as strike fighter tactics instructors, not maintenance officers. They were geared to actually go back and train their squatters and train the air wing. So it's really a two important things that came together in the mid nineties was a change in the way we employed the air wing and also a change in the way we thought about the curriculum. And those two things came together, I think in a really powerful way with the strike fighter tactics, instructor program that crunches, you know, sort of evidence. Number one is a great example of the modern top gun instructor. Yeah. I, I, I tell you, it's an incredible program. And I remember you guys were uh, the very first, graduates were coming to the fleet right about the time I was coming to the fleet as a, or mm-hmm. right about the time I was coming to the fleet, maybe in the rag, you know, I was, a, I was a, really young and I was, I was able to benefit from it because the folks that uh, you had trained as part of the SFTI program were now instructing at the rag. They were instructing at SWAT right. slam or the strike fighter right. weapons of Atlantic. And so we, you know, we were going through the the new the new program. We were learning more, and wow, it was it was. You could just tell that there was uh, even the people who were just a couple years senior to me did not have that as much as I did, and it was really good. And of course, it got better uh, yeah. the longer longer it went. It just kept getting better and better. And and now I don't know what they do now. They probably split the atom as part of the course. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but that, I mean, I, you know, I, I do believe that was super transformative, um, but it was like any, any you know, organizational shift and cultural shift. It was not without its challenges, right? Because oh, yeah. Top Gun was, was the domain of the F-14, you know, for the first, you know, uh, couple of decades. And then uh, now it was the domain of the strike fighter and the F-18 became, you know, more prevalent. And so they mean different communities, different missions, different attitudes. So it was definitely an interesting time to be on the staff and the move out of Miramar up to Fallon, which I think operationally was great, but it definitely, you know, the O club at Fallon was not <laughs> the O club at Miramar. So, you know, it was, uh, it was different. 
but it was really interesting experience and one that I, you know, I, now that I'm out as we all are in the real world doing other things, I, you know, I reflect on that a lot, all the lessons, organizational leadership lessons that, you know, that, uh, that we had to employ to kind of get where we wanted to get to with the, all the Fallon stuff we were doing. Yeah. Fallon was a great place for, for top guys, yeah. just to be clear. I mean, you, you, you blast off the runway and if you're going up to Bravo 20, it's like 19.3 miles to exactly. the center of the range. I mean, you get up there, you're, you, you're, you do your fence checks and you're like, Ooh, I'm out of the back end of the range. You got to turn around and fights on and you go. And I mean, you could fight almost down to the low fuel lights, Bravo absolutely. 17 or Bravo 20 and just yeah. go right into the yeah. break. It was absolutely yeah. amazing, which you couldn't do in the Papa areas off of Miramar. I mean, you had you yeah, know, the, all that being realize. said, I was glad I was there when it was at Miramar. <laughs> well, okay, so story time. This is a, yeah, so story time. So I go through the Top Gun. Uh, I'm there as a student. I get done. Uh, I'm like, uh, I get done with it, and I, I look at the skipper. I'm like, hey, um, I need to uh, go get married. So I'm going to drop some some vacation here. Boom. So I take take some leave, go get married, take my wife on a honeymoon. We come back, and they're like, all right, crunch, boom. Go get your Hornet Qual, do that. And they say, we're going down to Miramar for a 1v1 debt. I'm like, great. So we jump in the car. I'm, I'm, of course, junior bro, so I don't get a fly off spot. So <laughs> jump in my my wife's little Toyota Celica with her. And we're like, Wee! it's like a lawnmower all the way down from Fallon down to San Diego. We get down there. We have a great little time. We're driving. And she's driving around. And she's, you know, we're East Coast. She's like, so this is San Diego, huh? Now, and she goes, Top Gun used to be here. Is that, is that right? I, I, I say that, that's, that's right. It was. And she says, and, uh, how, how long ago was that? I'm like, it was, a, it was about a year and a half, two years ago. It wasn't, wasn't that long ago. So let me get this straight. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's right. That's you're, it's exactly what it was. So we, yeah. we had a great time in Fallon. It's a great place to live, uh, for sure. Uh, it, it's not San Diego. It doesn't have the traffic, but, uh, you know, San Diego is amazing course yeah, yeah but the ranges in Fallon are incredible oh yeah I, I had the best of both worlds right? i got three years on the staff in miramar and then i got a year on the staff in fallon then two almost three years at the you know the opso and ceo of the adversary unit so I, it was, for me it was great i think yeah i think the spouses my, my, my wife julie you know still loves san diego and all the spouses were sad but all the guys were like let's go fallon's amazing it's <laughs> great stuff great stuff all right. You guys got anything, you got any final comments on uh, Desert Storm uh, that, that we didn't ask you about? Or uh, I, I think you guys gave an excellent overview. I mean, focusing on the Tomcat, touching on the big picture, uh, a, a lot of reality. So any any final thoughts? Uh, not required. But yeah, I just want to give a, a shout out to the rest of our uh, VF-84 Jolly Roger Bubba's. We uh, we actually got together last summer in Austin at one of our uh, squatter mates' house. Had a great time. We were planning to get together uh, this spring in uh, Pensacola. So uh, we still uh, keep in touch, and, and it was a great group of guys to, uh, to be with. Crunch, were you ever in DF-84? Yeah. I was not. Neither was no, I. I was never... So uh, we're going to think about cutting that out. But <laughs> Well, you, you guys are welcome. You can be honorary uh... – Honorary Jolly Rogers. I was All right. Well, something. I'll just throw this out. VF31, uh, there's a bunch of us that are getting together in Memorial Day down in like Austin or something. So, so there. Hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> nah, I think that's not even funny. <laughs> I think I, and I, I reflect back and I just think about, you know, again, way back to the beginning of the conversation being the brand new nugget at the squadron. And we just had, we just had such a great group of folks and from Streak to Woody and Crow. I mean, you have a ton of experience in the senior JOs. 
I mean, it's really cool to reflect back that we young knucklehead like me can show up in that unit and five months later, you know, we're in theater and things generally work pretty well. And I think we did a great job. So there's, I think it's really kudos to this, the whole system, the whole program and the, the team, but we, we, it's a great group of folks. And as what he said, we still stay in touch. And um, the, the other piece that, and it'd be worth, you know, in a future conversation, we've only hinted at it, but the, the mission set that we did after Desert Storm, the, the provide comfort, which was all the support of the Kurdish refugees being pushed north out of Iraq. I mean, I, th- that's a bit of history that I think a lot of people have forgotten. And we had a, a kind of a front row seat to that, where they basically went from you know, living in Iraq and Mosul and getting pushed out. And they went from one tent where they were living um, in, in the very north part of Iraq to like hundreds of thousands of refugees. So it was kind of a, if you will, a harbinger of what happened in Syria and other places. That, to me, and I reflect back on that cruise, it was the kinetics of Desert Storm, but then it was the I mean, really challenging mission set to support all that, but also just um, the kind of a front seat to history and then not being active when we invaded Iraq in 2003. Um, it was it was harder, I think, to watch it on CNN and not be there than it was to be there and, uh, and actually be involved in it. So anyhow, for future conversation, that whole uh, provide comfort and what happened after Desert Storm, I think was really important as well. Hey, you didn't mention the cradle of civilization that time, so. Uh, exactly. <laughs> okay, so what are you guys doing now? Let's start with, uh, the, with the senior guy, Fuzzy, as you, as you mentioned earlier. So, Woody, what are you guys doing now? What are you doing now? I am uh, I'm on the faculty at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey in the Department of Information Sciences. I'm a, a re- what's called a research associate, so 100% of my time is, is doing research. Primarily on new technologies, new systems. Uh, we, we take a look at them, evaluate them, analyze them before they're sent out to the fleet. In fact, one of my projects that's starting this year is uh, working with Top Gun on some data link messaging systems. And so we'll be starting that uh, later this month. We'll go for a year. I also work with the students who are here to get the, in Monterey. Yes, it's a, it's a tough life, but someone's got to live here. Uh, but they're getting their master's degree. So I, I get, I work with them on their uh, master's thesis project. So that is what I'm doing these days. Man. It's impressive. Yeah. Nice. Fuzzy. I, um, yeah, I left active duty in 99. I was having a great time, but medically, um, I, I, my flying options got limited. So I decided to transition out into the quote unquote real world, went to business school. And then for the last 20 years, I've been, starting uh, technology companies, investing in technology companies, running technology companies. And then about three years ago, I, uh, I was inspired by Woody about the life of the academic. Uh, and I joined the faculty at Harvard Business School, where I had gone through and got my MBA back in the 99, 2001 time frame. So I've been teaching on the faculty there. I teach entrepreneurship and finance and different courses related to starting companies, especially you know high tech and science-based companies. So I do that about half time and then I'm sitting on boards and helping the next generation of leaders and founders that are starting companies and growing companies. So it's, it's pretty cool. And I constantly learning, I think uh, it's really neat to see these new and young leaders, you know, doing things that I uh, couldn't imagine. And so it's fun, fun to be part of that. You guys are a couple of overachievers. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) I, I feel I've, 
I feel somewhat inadequate. <laughs> <laughs> same, same crunch. I'm right with you. Uh, all right, gents. Hey, this has been a great, uh, great discussion. I really appreciate your time. This has been, uh, what are we at now? Almost an hour 20, almost an hour and a half, I think. So what a great conversation, great discussion. Really appreciate the insight. I think our audience is going to love it. We love the stories and, uh, thank you for joining us over you bio. Yeah. Thanks you guys. Uh, I, I was in the Pentagon for Desert Storm, so I haven't spent a lot of time talking to, to anybody here in the uh, Tomcat War Stories. So you guys uh, filled in for me, and and like Crunch says, I think the audience is going to love it too. So thanks for taking the time to uh, spend with us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're, we're, yeah, we're glad to be here. Just, yeah, yeah, on behalf of our squadron and everybody else that was over there. I mean, everybody has their own stories, but you guys are doing a great job with this podcast, so thanks for doing it. It's been super fun to get back into remembering those days. So thank you for doing this. Appreciate your time, guys. All right. Thanks, Chance. Appreciate it. Hey, Bio, what a great episode that was. You know, I I really enjoy hearing old war stories from guys, you know, like Fuzzy and Woody. So, you know, as as we've said several times, you know, they were in VF-84, the Jolly Rogers. So although it's not the oldest fighter squadron, the Jolly Rogers is probably the most iconic I mean, I've said it before, you know, when I was a kid, probably just like everybody else, I had a model of an F4 Phantom painted up with the skull and bones from the Jolly Rogers. And, and I'm, and I'm sure, and I know that I made a, a, a Tomcat model. I'm pretty sure it was a VFA, uh, uh, 84 jet. I, I, I believe it was. The thing I do remember about that was I distinctly remember using too much glue and having those wings stuck out at 20 degrees in the model. We, we've all been there. If you built a Tomcat, you know what I mean? You just use a little too much and this thing gets stuck. But in any case, it had the VF-84. It had the, I, you know, you, you because you would pull off those little decals and you put that stripe down the side of the fuselage, right? That angled stripe with the arrows. And it just looks so stinking cool. I bring that up because it was just, it was just, it's so fun to talk with guys who are actually in probably the most iconic squadron out there doing, doing the work in 1991. Yeah, that was a cool episode. I agree with you. You know, what I thought was fascinating was thinking about the guys in the squadron and on the ship when they were on their way over and this, you know, everybody knew the crisis was building and it was building to a point of combat. I'm just trying to imagine the uh, the feeling as they were anticipating going into combat. Also, the fact that their combat missions probably were not what they were expecting. But uh, it had to be, you know, scary, exciting, all that stuff at the same time. And uh, those guys, Woody and uh, Fuzzy, brought it out nicely. Hey, let me change topics and say thank you. A sincere thank you from all of us here at the F-14 TomCast for those who generously contributed in response to our pledge drive uh, in the last episode. We will scroll the names of people who contributed more than $5 in uh, just a moment. Also, one more thing, and I'm going to look at my notes here. We have a few extra large uh, F-14 TomCast golf shirts remaining. So take a look in the episode description for this episode to uh, see the status if they are still remaining uh, here you go if you're interested the first step is to send an email to questions at f14tomcast.com and put polo shirt in the title in the subject of the email the cost is $45 for shirts mailed to addresses in the United States $70 per shirt mailed to uh, Europe, 
And in Australia, it's about $110 and let me verify the postage. Again, if you are interested, send an email expressing your interest and let me get back to you to tell you how to pay for it and confirm the shirt's availability. Extra large is the only size we have remaining. Thanks for those who have supported the F-14 Tomcast so far. I hope you enjoy those shirts. So what a great episode that was. I really appreciate everybody listening today. You've been listening to the F-14 Tomcast, part of the Air Combat Experience, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at F14Tomcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101, extension 3. That's 877-622-4101, extension 3. For updates on this podcast and our other military aviation themed shows, visit BVRPro.com and follow the Air Combat Experience on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.